0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Invested, where we talk about wealth as being more than just money. Our partners, Paul Rand, Joel Rand, and Sarah Minikari will bring in guests and industry thought leaders to chat about meaningful topics
1: on personal finances, health and wellness, ideas for your business, tax planning, and other key issues that impact our lives and our livelihood. So thank you for joining us. And we
0: hope you find our discussions not only practical and educational, but maybe sometimes a little thought
1: provoking. With that, let's get to the episode. Hi, and welcome back to Invested. Today's episode is part of a mini series we are recording on alternative investments. We found that many investors are familiar with the more traditional investments of publicly traded stocks and bonds, and perhaps have even had some exposure to things like publicly traded REITs or maybe even commodity funds. But our hopes are to help widen our listeners' understanding of some of the less traditional investments that we use in some of our clients' portfolios. For those of you that have already listened to our first podcast in this series, aptly titled The One Introducing Alternative Investments, you learned that we sometimes refer to this asset class as just alternatives or even abbreviated alts. And In doing so, we are referring to a silo of investments that don't act like traditional stocks, bonds, and cash. Historically, stocks and bonds are generally negatively correlated, meaning when stocks do well, bonds usually don't, and when bonds do well, stocks usually don't. Portfolio managers generally use a mix of these to help smooth the ride of return investment profiles. With alternatives, the idea is to add other asset classes that are non-correlated to traditional stocks and bonds, meaning that they generally aren't up and down in the same cycles, and this further smooths investors' return profiles. Many studies have shown that the addition of alternatives to traditional portfolios has, over time, actually improved returns while lowering the overall risk profile of a portfolio that includes only stocks and funds. On today's episode, we had the great opportunity to speak with Julianne Woodson. She is a Certified Financial Analyst, or CFA, Managing Director, and the Lead Product Strategist for the BlackRock Private Investments Fund within their Private Equity Partners division. In today's conversation with Julianne, we focus specifically on private equity, what it is, how it works, and how it's different than publicly traded equity. Prior to joining BlackRock's private equity partners, Julianne was a senior product strategist within Global Credit where she spent a decade developing solutions for U.S. wealth clients across BlackRock's traditional and alternative credit platform. She has also spent time working with Global Credit where she developed and oversaw a range of liquid and alternative strategies, so she is certainly well versed in this space. From 2008 to 2011 she was a fixed income product specialist covering core bond, mortgage, and inflation protected strategies. Her history of being responsible for product development, investor relations, and acting as a link between portfolio management teams and investors made her an excellent guest for us to dive into private equity. She earned her BS cum laude in finance and a minor in international studies from the University of Maryland. So with no further ado, let's get to our conversation with Julianne Woodson from BlackRock. Well, hi, welcome back to Invested, where we're joined today by Julianne Woodson, Managing Director and Lead Strategist for the BlackRock Private Investment Fund. Thank you, Julianne, for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So as we talked about, we're doing a series of podcasts. And we're on this series, we're talking about alternative investments. We did a sort of intro to alternatives 101 and touched lightly on different asset classes inside alternative investments. And in this one, we want to dive a little bit deeper into private equity specifically. But before we get into all the nitty and gritty of private equity, um You've had experience in several different parts of this asset class, including global credit and long short and other strategies. And you know, a lot of our clients that are listening know that we've been doing private assets for a while and recommending those where appropriate. Um, but can you give us a little bit of your th- just overall thoughts on the asset class of that bucket, that very big bucket of alternative investments um, as a category as a whole and why people should have them in their portfolio and, you know, what role do they play in the portfolio?
0: Absolutely. Um, As you mentioned, I've really spent my career at the intersection of wealth um, and alternative investments. I have covered virtually everything from mutual funds to hedge funds uh, and the traditional ways of private market investing, which would be the lockup limited partnership vehicles. Um, I'm drawn to the things that feel complex and make me think harder, which is really why I've spent the last five to 10 years focusing in on alternatives. Um, and I have learned two things. One is that alternatives are not so alternative anymore. And secondly, they are not one size fits all. What I mean by that is that different types of alternatives can play different roles in a portfolio, so it's important to understand what outcome you're trying to drive to. Um, We've developed a framework to analyze just that. We actually call it the HDMA model, and we encourage advisors and clients to know how to use it um, and to know the outcome you're seeking and and match the intent with execution. Um, So the H in HDMA stands for hedge, which is not hedge, hedge funds. Um, but rather the strategies that are designed to increase in value when core exposures are falling. So think of something that's negatively correlated to stocks. Managed futures are a good example, which would really be categorized as a liquid alternative, not necessarily a private alternative. Um, You see those losing money over the long run if markets are grinding higher. But in a year Mm -hmm. like 2022, when things were severely negative, those are going to tactically pay off. D is the second category. It stands for diversifiers. You know, something that has low or moderate correlation to the rest of a portfolio, but with different return drivers. There you want to prioritize lower beta strategies, which can help cushion a portfolio against shocks in markets when everything seems to move together or correlate to one. Um, Finding strong strategies here can be like finding a needle in a haystack. Um, Industry performance, if you look at Morningstar, suggests that, you know, fewer than 20% of quote unquote, diversifier funds are delivering returns um, over the last five years in excess of 3% with betas less than 0.3. So this is a tough area to to kind of be putting capital to work. Similarly, uh, the third category, um, M, modify, that's a way to lower volatility, hopefully drive to a a strong return outcome. That's definitionally pretty challenging to do. Similarly to, to diversifiers, you might end up overpaying here, um, uh, relative to the performance that you're able to generate. And that's where you get to amplifiers. Um, this is where I think we're gonna spend the crux of our conversation. It's where I have spent the last few years, figuring out how you know we get more investors access to higher returning parts of the market. This is where we bucket private market offerings. So think private real estate, private credit and private equity. These are private asset classes there are embedded return premiums, which are really there to to help amplify returns over more liquid or public markets. While they're technically labeled alternative, you know, we look at these strategies really as extensions of public market counterparts with just different risk profiles. For example, you might see private credit as a potential way to pick up additional return over fixed income, provided you can tolerate the illiquidity of the asset class. We also see private equity as a potential way to increase long-term returns over public stocks. Depending on how portfolios are constructed, sometimes you see a 60-40 portfolio with a chunk of the 60 on the equity side allocated to to private equity. That amount can vary, right? And the types of underlying private equity used can vary. And similarly, on the fixed income side, you might see 10% 10 or more hived off and allocated to, to private debt really is a way to to amplify amplify yield premiums over the public markets.
2: We sure do love acronyms, don't we? (laughs) In this industry, the alphabet soup is just, uh, but HGMA, I really, uh, I like that. And I think it's a perfect uh, acronym for the asset class. So let's back up. Let's talk uh, private equity in your simplest terms. What the heck is it? AKA PE. Uh, that's our acronym for private equity. Uh, and then how does it differ from public equity?
1: And and I noticed too, you when you mentioned managed futures, I used to tell people, well, that's something look, there's something in your in your portfolio. You're gonna be three years of why do I have this? Why do I have this? Why do I have this? And Thank then God I year, have it. And then why <laughs> they got I have it. Yes. and yeah. then why do I have it? Why do I have it? Why do I have it? Thank God I have it. Anyway. Exactly. Um, exactly. I didn't mean to interrupt you uh, I with the guess they're both <laughs>
0: So we think of really, we agree, PE and private equity, it's one of those terms that is thrown around, right? And I think we're never quite sure what someone means when they talk about private equity. But what I'm using it as, um, and I think you know, how we're referring to it in the market, is it's a catch-all term, right? So very simply, private equity is equity investing in private companies, companies that are not listed on a stock exchange, um, there's often an association with companies that are looking to go public and, and people can make the mis- have, draw the misconception that private equity is about investing in companies that are going to IPO. Um, so that's part of it, right? A topical market example today would be Instacart, um, the grocery delivery app that all of us um, or some of us, Um, many of us, I would suspect, are are probably using. I just ordered groceries uh, earlier today to get delivered home.
1: That's not an endorsement, by the way.
0: (laughs) It's not an endorsement, no. um, Like the record state, not an endorsement. Um, We do not have an investment uh, in Instacart within our private platform. Um, But they recently filed to go public uh, and trade under the ticker CART, C-A-R-T. That's one example, right? Or maybe what comes to mind is what we call or refer to as the traditional owner operator model. This is where a private equity firm buys an entire company or the controlling interest in a company with the intention of controlling it and changing it. Maybe they want to uh, combine it with something else um, and add it to their portfolio. Um, Or maybe they just they think they can do a better job um, than the current management team. This is kind of what is portrayed in movies and in media and, you know, on TV shows. So we were joking earlier. Think of um, Richard Gere's character in Pretty Woman. If you recall, his character was a businessman. Um, He was looking to buy a family shipping company. Initially, he was looking to buy the company. He's going to tear it apart, uh, sell it for parts, and the family hates that. Why would they like that, right? This is their life's work. This is their shining accomplishment. And in comes Richard Gere, who's going to tear it apart.
1: Well, thankfully, Um, Julia Julia comes in.
0: Thankfully, yes. (laughs) Thankfully, uh, Julia Roberts comes in. Um, His motivations change, right? Ultimately, he decides he wants to work with them. And he says, let's build ships together, i.e., he wants them to succeed. So he wants to help restructure them. He wants to help them grow. Perhaps he sees synergies with other portfolio companies right? that that he owns. Both of those examples, whether it's the high-flying company you see on CNBC and they're going to go public, like in the case of Instacart, as well as the traditional buyout owner-operator model, like Richard Gere in Pretty Woman, both of those fit under the wide private equity umbrella. And that really encompasses a range of investment strategies and access points. So just a a little bit of context, which I think is always helpful. Um, There are around 5,000 dedicated private equity firms here in the U.S. That's private equity firms that are going out and looking for these opportunities. We've got over 18,000 currently private equity backed companies in the U.S. Um, With the impact of those businesses, whether it's um, the underlying private equity business or the private equity firm, um, as well as supplier and consumer relationships, right? The total impact is private equity contributing over 15% to U.S. GDP. So you're talking about $4 trillion of GDP generated, employing over 30 million people. And you, you might wonder, why give these stats? Because private equity, while it may seem opaque and vague and nebulous, is really, really, really important to our economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: You guys asked how it differs from public stocks, right? I'd say the first and and obvious answer is that these companies are private. Um, Most people simply do not have the network to gain access to and work with these companies to identify investment opportunities, which is really very different from going into your brokerage account or calling your trusted advisor and buying shares of, you know, one of the few thousand publicly listed companies out there. I think it's also worth talking about, you know, the, the vantage point of a private equity investor relative to a public markets investor. There, you're limited to simply being an observer. In private equity, you get a you can you can right get a firsthand view of the change that sponsors and management teams are affecting within companies. You also hopefully have the luxury of time on your side, where you're not managing to quarterly earnings, right, a daily stock price sec reporting and and regulation but you've got the benefit of allowing improvements to play out usually over a multi-year period there's a lot of flexibility in private equity it's not always about going public i think there's a misconception that it's always about an ipo a a big splashy ipo but i'd say in fact you know sales to other companies where there can be potential synergies um, and and a strategic advantage and combining things through m and a right, that can really drive significant returns as well. All very different from the public markets where the market, as I think we all kind of see day to day, behaves as it wants. Sometimes it's driven by fundamentals, often driven by sentiment, and of course is reacting to what's happening around the world.
1: Yeah, and you um, brought up an interesting point there, and I want to make sure we emphasize that you know, the ability to impact the company as a manager of a portfolio or slash an owner of a a company, the managers of private equity have a much, a greater ability to be able to get in there and help the company and make a difference versus a shareholder. Not that there aren't, you know, shareholders, large shareholders of public companies that go in and buy very large, but that's The vast minority of the cases, whereas in a private equity situation, it is very likely that the private equity manager is very actively involved in what's going on in the company and and advising them on how to do better.
0: Absolutely. At the end of the day, having one very active equity owner who has um, one skin in the game, right? your interests are aligned, two and three, they've got a long-term horizon and a plan to create value. That can be very much preferred to thousands of passive individual owners in the public markets, and and that's really the crux of private equity.
1: And then, in just in that that IPO uh, point that you mentioned too, I think it's important because um, when we're t- we'll talk about you know the the market for private companies and and the ability to invest in those, but you know really the the world has changed. It used to be the case that. A company is getting bigger, and they need access to capital. And they, yes, they can borrow it. But another way of accessing capital is to go public. And so that's how it used to be. It's like, hey, we need more liquidity. Let's go public and sell part of our company to the to the public. Now, with if you look at more recent bigger transactions, and name, you know, name your tech company that's in there that recently went IPO in the last several years. But that's that's not a, a, hey, how do we raise capital? They had plenty of capital coming from larger investors, even though they remain private. It was actually a liquidity event for those that are already owners, right?
0: That's right. Um, not only are there fewer IPOs that are happening, but the time to IPO is now a lot longer than it used to be. So kind of in the years leading up to the tech bubble, right, the time to IPO was six years. So there was this rush to get to market um, and then raise capital via the public markets. And now what we're seeing is the average time to IPO is 12 to 13 years for some of these tech companies. So it's taking a lot longer for these companies to ultimately go public, which means the value creation is happening um, happening when they are private and accruing right. to those private investors, just further underscoring the need for more investors to be tapping into the private opportunity set.
1: And and from that opportunity set, I, I think the stat is about 13% of of companies are publicly traded, and about eighty-seven percent are are private. And I think I have these. And you mentioned that you know less than five thousand. There's less than five thousand publicly traded companies available. But when you look at private companies, that in the U.S. there are about seven million private companies, and about two million of those have fifty or more employees. So from a sheer opportunity set, we're we're looking at a, a massive opportunity, right?
0: That's right. That's absolutely right. And while earlier I talked about, you know, private equity is not necessarily a diversifier, it's playing more of an amplifier role. When we think about the extension of the equity market opportunity set, you know, there is some diversification potential there in accessing private equity because it expands the types of opportunities that you'll get access to. And a lot of these things are just, you know, opportunities you cannot replicate in public markets, thus allowing for, for some diversification.
2: Okay. In our industry, uh, we love to throw around not only acronyms, <laughs> but terms like VC, buy, right? uh, buyout, secondaries, and we talked about IPOs a little bit. Um, can we talk through some of the stages of investment when considering PE um, and, and how they're different? Absolutely.
0: So there are a range of private equity investing strategies that are out there. Um, they can happen at you know in different forms at different points in a company's life, and we'll 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 talk through kind of what those buckets are and then how you can access them, which is going to get even more confusing. But for simplicity's sake, let's bucket you know the private equity stages into four different groups. Um, you might hear venture capital, which is referred to investing in earlier stage companies, right? You might be an early a seed, or maybe you've heard the term angel investor. This is where you're providing capital, usually as a minority investor, to a company that's in the very early stages of establishing their product or their service. They're trying to build revenues, right? And build out sort of um, their their market share. They are not profitable at this point. They probably have really high capital needs um, and we'd argue the risks are higher. So just for for example, for numbers sake, if you make 10 venture capital uh, investments, right? You would expect most of them to fail. They're not going to return um, much, if anything. And you're really only go- going to rely on one or two to return significantly, to be those home runs and make up for the, for the rest of the portfolio being losers. So it's much higher risk return. Um, next is sort of the growth equity or late stage venture space. Um, you might hear us refer to that as pre-IPO. These are the companies that are in growth mode. Maybe they are seeking that last round of equity financing. They want to boost their valuation because they intend to go public near term. Um, Here you look for or you you might find companies that are are more established, right? They're further along in their life than a traditional early stage venture investment. They've got revenue growth. Um, Perhaps they are not yet profitable, but they're kind of on that cusp um, near term. So it's, it's no longer about are you growing? How much are you growing? How fast? It's about efficiency of growth, right? Measured against profitability. So it's still higher on the risk return spectrum, but it's a little um, it's a little uh, less risky than what we would view as a traditional early stage venture investment. I should also mention that, you know, most growth equity or late stage VC investing is definitionally minority investing, right? Typically, um, and in a lot of cases, these are not PE backed companies, or, or, or you know, I, I should say, um, they don't have one single PE sponsor, they may have a lot of private equity investments, but, but no lead sponsor. Um, so you want to look at, you know who your counterparts are going into these types of transactions. Do
1: you yeah, good and just to clarify then, so it may be the case when, when there are different private equity funds or managers, there may be a company that has multiple uh, private equity firms that may be investing in that same company, right? in absolutely. different percentages. yeah,
0: absolutely. but no one is no one is owning the majo- majority stake, right? Yeah. No one has that controlling interest. and that's a key differentiator relative to buyout investing. Um, which is kind of bucket three. And that is definitionally, right, you are looking to take um, a controlling stake. And this is the majority of of sort of the private equity market or universe. It's about two thirds of the transactions that we see. And it's what we mean. And I think what others mean when they talk about traditional private equity. Um, You'll also hear the term LBO, right, in the interest of, of acronyms. LBO is a leveraged buyout. Think back to Richard Gere, right? This is that traditional control owner-operator model where the PE firm is active, they are driving change, they have a plan, they want to execute on that plan to create value and generate returns for their investors. Um, So in the case of Richard Gere, right, he wanted to initially tear apart that shipping company, sell it for parts. He then decided he was going to buy the company, he was going to work with the existing management team, which was the family, um, and they were going to build more ships together. Um, to use a golf metaphor, even though I hate golf metaphors, um, no, disrespect <laughs> <to> golf. <laughs> <Easy>. <laughs> no disrespect to golfers. Easy, no disrespect to golfers. I just I never learned to play. But buyouts are a straight down the center of the fairway investment in private equity. In that same portfolio of of ten investments, right? Unlike venture investing, maybe only one to two are not good returners. Most are going to turn. Most are going to return something if not on average, looking to, to roughly double your initial investment. And then that's three buckets. The fourth would be, you know, what we call special situations investing. As the name suggests, right, this is situational. It's predicated typically on a company experiencing some sort of change or stress, be that financial or operational. Um, so you might see opportunities to invest in a company look going through a bankruptcy, um, where they're looking to restructure and they're seeking out, you know, targeted capital. These types of opportunities can can kind of sometimes have a debt feel to them, right? With sort of some sort of equity upside. Um, it's typically very episodic, uh, and the risks and return are going to vary depending on the situation. Um, that those are sort of the four stages in how most of the market would view private equity investing in terms of the flavors. In order to access any one of these three, typically you've got, or any one of these four, I'm sorry, typically you've got three methods of access, right? Um, and I'm happy to get into the, you know, what what those are and, and go through some of the industry jargon there.
1: Yeah. Before we jump into the to the access, I have a couple of points. One is, um, first, thank you so much for mentioning Richard Gere and Pretty Woman. Um because Sarah shames me every time I bring up uh, Pretty Woman or the movie Wall Street, and she's like, you're totally dating yourself.
0: It's a classic, agree <laughs> on that. it's a classic and it still holds.
1: I say so too, but you know, you know whatever. Uh, the second one is talking about, you know, you mentioned the opportunistic and buying into a company that may be going through a bankruptcy. And I think that sort of special, special situation is, you know, somebody hears, oh my gosh, they're going, this company's going bankrupt. Well, hey, there may be a great company that owns their building, makes a fantastic widget, has great employees, and they maybe just didn't know how to run a company really well. Yep, and, exactly. th- and we can see that as an opportunity and say, hey, we can go in there, we can pick up a, a chunk of this company, we can turn it around with a few easy, you know, maybe not so easy changes. And then but there's, there's obviously unlocked potential in this company.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. we we tend to agree. And, um, you know, if we look at 25, 30 years of investing. Um, most of what we have seen consistent with the market is, is the buyout space. But, you know, if you're going to dive in and, and tactically kind of play in some of these special situation, um, you know, cases, right. You want to have targeted industry expertise or sector expertise. There are certain areas where, um, you know, the, the bankruptcy laws, you know, can change and be very different. Um the airline industry and aviation is a great example of that. Um, so we have we have kind of dabbled in some special situations opportunities, but you want to be very targeted, you want to have the skill set, the ability to, to kind of work through the stress. Um, and then there's of course the you know, the companies that may just be going through a transformation. It may not be right, a real financial stress or could be an operational issue or, or something that they're looking to overcome, right? But again, that industry expertise would be really critical there.
1: So and when we talk about unlocking the value, you know, one of the things that we when we're talking to our clients about investing in private equity and we show uh, averages and of historical returns and including the amount of volatility of those annualized returns and when you compare that to publicly traded equities, a lot of times, depending on the manager, which is a critical factor on manager selection is key, um, but we can see examples where private equity has actually shown a greater return over a longer period of time with less volatility than a publicly traded, you know, publicly traded markets. So how how does that work? I mean, normally you say, hey, the more risk, the more return. But in this case, we're actually seeing in some cases a, a higher level of return with lower risk. So how, how does that how does that work?
0: I was wondering when this question was was going to come up because <laughs> it's kind of inevitable to talk about private equity without talking about returns. Yeah, um, because I think there, there's such gravitation toward that um, that long term return premium. So. Over, you know, whether or not you're looking at 10, 15, 20 years, um, you can slice and dice private equity indices in a number of different ways and look at specific vintages, specific managers, you can look at the median, you can look at top quartile, right? But if you if you kind of look at the overall outcome, it's outperformance versus public markets kind of over that long-term um, horizon by a margin of anywhere from 5 to 7%. Sometimes more, and in periods of stress, it's really not uncommon to see the potential for PE alpha to increase Part of that being because vol creates opportunity. And I think many private equity investors would argue no one is better suited to execute uh, on the opportunities arising from broad market stress than a PE investor who can take that active approach that we talked about from a sourcing perspective, underwriting and ultimately managing the investments. Um, But more generally, right, I look at the return premium a couple of different ways, right? There is the illiquidity premium simply the expectation for higher returns in exchange for less liquidity and lower frequency of trading. So as a reminder, traditional private equity funds have an investment life of 10 years, and there is no liquidity to investors along the way. So um, on the the kind of deal side, as we go into, as a platform, as we go into a private company, and this is pretty typical for PE, you would usually underwrite to a five-year holding period or horizon on average. Yeah that is very different from public markets where I think we all know you're buying and selling intraday. Um, Very, very, very different. So one is a very long-term asset class and and you're not really subject to the whims of the markets uh, the way that you are as as a public investor. It's also worth talking about the complexity premium. This is how you're compensated for finding the private opportunity, which is harder than it sounds. Negotiating, structuring, and underwriting an investment, right? Sometimes alongside a sponsor. Sometimes you've got to work with the company. There's a lot of nuance to it. Um, and it's not just about closing the gap between buyers and sellers as it relates to price. There's a lot that goes into a PE investment. There's a lot of legalese, right? And so that, that complexity premium should not go you know, undiscussed. And that ties into something that I think is Really important that we point to in private equity often that you can't really point to in public markets, which is the information premium or the information advantage. In public markets, um, you if you trade on material non-public information, right? We all know the the outcome for you if if um, if uh, if you do that, right? But in private markets, we're talking about. You know, an area that is naturally opaque where information can give you an edge when it comes to price negotiating and ultimately creating value um, on the part of the PE firm. So uh, it's really hard to deconstruct how much of that five to seven percent, you know, PE alpha over public markets comes from illiquidity versus complexity versus the information advantage. But I think that the combination is what we look at as driving that long-term outperformance. And on the vol side, it's actually pretty straightforward. Publicly traded stocks are traded all day, every day, intraday. Um, Even mutual funds, right, strike a daily price at which you can come in and come out on a daily basis. As an industry, private equity tends to be valued quarterly and based on fundamental performance. Um, So when you combine that, right, the lack of that sort of public market you know, in and out, right, the, um, the less sensitivity to selling pressures, right, and you combine all of that with these long, long, long investment horizons that private equity investors have, that sort of explains the optically lower volatility relative to something that's striking a price every day.
1: Right. And I think that's, that's an important point that, you know, hey, you get some sort of headline news. Uh, it is much more likely that some people may go home and sell out of their mutual fund or their ETF, and it is far less likely that you're going to sell out of your private your private equity.
0: Well, and, and it's 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 less about you know like how likely you are to sell out of your private equity, and it's you probably can't get out of your private equity, right? By design, this is a long term asset class. When you're talking about traditional private equity, yeah. which is a ten year hold, um, you've got no option out unless you are an investor who can tap the secondary market and go out and find a replacement investor, which is of course an avenue. And that creates, um, that creates an advantage for existing private equity investors, as well as for folks like ourselves who are looking for investment opportunities. So um, you know, there are lots of different ways to, to play this market, benefits to managers, benefits to existing investors, and benefits to prospective
2: investors. So before we get into the democratization um, of private equity, let's talk about, let's go back to the access point. So primaries versus direct index, investing versus secondaries, and kind of the pros and cons of each of the three categories. Yes.
0: So I mentioned you've got four flavors, right? Reminder, we've got venture, we've got growth slash late stage venture, we've got buyout, we've got special situations. In addition to those flavors, you have three methods of access to keep it simple, one is picking funds, that is called primary investing. So that's when you're making a commitment to invest in a manager's fund, assuming you can get access to the right managers, which is easier said than done, as is all things in private markets. You need significant resources, experience, access. You gotta meet their minimums, all to be able to build a diversified slate of investments. Or maybe you just you know bypass some of those steps and you can make uh, an investment in a primary fund of funds. Either way, you know, there, there are a lot of considerations here. This is known as blind pool investing, um, where you are making a commitment for a 10 year period, right? Um, so you're holding hands with a manager for 10 years. Uh, they're gonna draw down your capital as, um, um, as you fund capital calls over, call it a three to four year period. But a manager doesn't usually call money on a set schedule, right? They ask you for money when they find the opportunities which is totally subject to the market environment. Um, Maybe they invest in those underlying companies, they buy them, they have a five-year horizon, and then at the end of that, they sell the companies and they start to return your capital. Um, So as an investor going into a primary strategy, you need to be understanding who's that manager, what are they going to invest in, how many deals would you expect to be participating in over that 10-year period, um, how much diversification do you need? Are you comfortable with that few of holdings? Or are you going to need to replicate this this you know over and over and over for diversification? Um, understand you're probably going to experience the dreaded J curve where the returns in in the early years, right, you're zero through four where the manager is calling your capital and you're writing them a check. you're not getting anything to show for it, right? So returns are negative. Um, this is also the space where that two and twenty moniker, right, is going to come into play. So you're going to pay, end up paying most likely two percent management fee on average, and be subject to twenty percent carried interest, uh, which is paid to the PE firm as well. Um, so that is primaries investing. There are there are alternatives, right? There are options. Um, one of the other avenues uh, to access private equity is direct investing. Um, which Sarah, you mentioned, that is just really simply the purchase of an equity interest. It can be minority interest. It can be a majority interest directly in private companies. I actually just use the analogy of stock picking um, in private markets, right? So Paul, you mentioned the you know tens of, of thousands of um, private companies that are out there and that's just here in the US, right? If you can access those and identify the ones that you want to participate in, Um, uh, either alongside a private equity firm who's given you the opportunity to join them, that's known as co-investing, or perhaps you're given access directly to the company because it doesn't have a lead PE backer, as we talked about earlier, Um, that might be in the growth equity or late-stage venture space. This is sort of stock picking in in private markets. Um, A fair question and, and something that we always spend a bit of time with folks on is why would a private equity firm open up access to one of their portfolio companies? You know, why, w- why would they call someone and say, hey, you can get direct access to, to this deal um, instead of going in through, uh, through their fund? Um, in a scenario where a private equity firm is buying a whole company, or maybe they're buying a significant stake, they may not want to write the whole equity check themselves. Yeah, maybe they want to finance a portion of it, and there's some a debt component, um, but even on the equity side, if they want to lead the transaction, they may still have equity financing gaps to plug, and they may look to strategic partners to do that. So that are, that creates uh, the opportunity to to co invest um, in these opportunity in these in these portfolio companies alongside, um, you know, really marquee private equity sponsors. This can be a really great way to access um, strong sponsors and their you know, great deal flow, but have control um, of, of your portfolio construction. Most co-investments actually don't come with fees. That's a benefit of direct co-investing. Um, so this can be a way to potentially generate higher returns versus what you would achieve in the primary side, but without that fee drag. Um, and then the last area, I promise, um, is uh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about secondaries. It won't be the
1: last comment we make, but yeah.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. I, I can no. be very long, winded um, Let's talk a, a little bit about secondaries, um, yeah. which I, I kind of flagged earlier. This is really, you know, kind of technically the sale and purchase of existing uh, investor interests in private equity. So remember a primary, right? You sign up for to invest for 10 years. You have no ability to get out until the GP says so. What happens if you need or want liquidity or to exit fully somewhere along the way? Um, you can't. Um, that that is the whole that is the whole uh, limitation of private equity, and, and hence the liquidity premium. But um, a market did develop in uh, the 80s and the 90s which ultimately has become a key tool for investors over the last 20 years, right? As a way for existing PE investors or LPs to find replacement LPs. LP stands for limited partner and it's just a fancy word for private equity investor. Um, This is called traditional secondary investing um, where existing investor goes out, finds a replacement to come in and assume their obligation to fund future capital calls. Um, Doesn't end there though. The secondary market has evolved over the last 15 years. So managers, right, private equity firms can now be the catalyst to seek out replacement investors if they maybe want to restructure their funds or selectively restructure investments, especially if a little more time, capital or patience, or maybe love is needed to unlock that last bit of value um, for for the sponsor's value creation plan. We actually talk about Primaries today, right, so the funds that are launching today actually become the feedstock for the secondary market of tomorrow. Um, Some of the benefits of of secondary investing, right, I'd say they they have attributes of both primaries as well as direct investing. So they're giving you a bit more control over your portfolio construction. They've got more diversification potential. They can help reduce the J-curve. Um, but there is a fee layer, so so there are some considerations there for investors. But overall, lots and lots of ways to
2: to play in the private equity sandbox. But it used to be the minimum investment for these types of investments was two hundred fifty thousand, a million, five million. But that's changed, um, which is great news because that gives our clients access to these funds at a much more uh, accessible amount. Can you touch on? Kind of what the old structure was and and how it's changed going forward.
0: Yeah. so that that old structure, right is the um, is the 10 year lockup um, where you know you have to make that sizable commitment that you talked about. So used to be five million as an entry point and then in the last call it five to ten years, Democratization has allowed for different, you know, feeder structures and so on and so forth that bring down those minimums to, you know, still something in the six figures, right? Something that is is not not really that small. Um, it can be significant as a percentage of someone's overall uh, overall wealth. But regardless, right, that capital is not invested upfront. It is a commitment. It is called uh, and invested over, call it three to four years, right? you're paying two and 20 to the manager, you're getting a K one, which stinks um, for, for, tax reporting purposes. Um, that is the old model, right? What has happened. If, if
1: any is, of the accountants are listening, they'll, they'll give us a call and tell us about the K ones. Cause they, yeah, that,
0: that was not a plug, right. But um, <laughs> believe it or not, the the K one, especially if you're getting multiple K ones, yeah. right. The hardest K one to get is the first. And then after that, it's just a title wave, but um What has what has happened is, right, we've gotten some innovation in structures and wrappers and managers have a greater desire to bring a broader range of investors access, not just to private equity, but a range of private market strategies. So we're now beyond this is an asset class for institutions and for qualified purchasers and the ultra, ultra, ultra high net worth. Right now, you've got continuously offered vehicles that have much lower investment minimums. So you might see, you know, something as low as $25,000 or, you know, around there, something that you can come into periodically, maybe monthly or quarterly. In very few instances, you'll see, you know, the ability to get in daily. Um, I think there are are solutions for the lack of liquidity as well. Um, A number of the newer vehicles have been structured to to give you the option of limited liquidity on a quarterly basis. Um, So again, making that experience it a bit more palatable and then i'm saving the best for last no k1 right a lot of these vehicles are, are have been built <laughs> Woo! To deliver. A
1: Woo! you know it's we get, ex- we get very excited about tax forms around
0: here. <laughs> so having ha- i i you know having in a prior life had to look at k1s and try to piece together what's going to be treated as a long-term capital gain what is income what is the outcome of this whole thing right The 1099 really streamlines and simplifies the tax, the tax headaches. Um, So we see this this innovation and, and the expansion of access not only opening the door to private equity for more investors, usually first time investors, but it's also adding a new tool into the private equity toolkit. So now you have novice or even sophisticated private equity investors we can now use these evergreen options, these newer structures in tandem with traditional commitment-style investing. Um, And the outcome can lead to lower fees that you're paying to managers and potentially making fewer and smaller commitments while still staying invested in the asset class and preserving return potential. Um, So I think we're still in the early stages of the democratization and the expansion of access. And I think we're going to see these vehicles used more and more for all kinds of investors.
1: Yeah. So, you know, the the industry has changed quite a bit and, and it's great. We have easier access to private equity funds, um, but alternatives really aren't for everyone and, and certainly all cases, right? So what would you say are some of the primary risks uh, to con- consider when you're looking at Hey, this manager or that manager or just, you know, a private equity has an asset class in general.
0: Tolerance for illiquidity. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to start there because even with the evolution in the structures, right, even though in some of these newer structures, you can get a little bit of liquidity over time. Private equity is a long term game. Yeah. And it's not something that you want to try in time. We hear sometimes from investors, is now a good time? I want to come in, you know, at the low, right? I want to buy low, sell high. Um, that's really hard to do and, and implement successfully in an asset class where you're trying to drive returns over a five-year period. Um, I think the other challenge is ensuring investors know what they're signing up for in private equity um, and being able to have that patient capital knowing that you're not going to see returns the same way that you will in in public markets, So respecting that long-term game is is really key. And then I think, you know, understanding the benefits and risks of the various styles that we talked about, you know, buyouts versus venture, understanding where they live on the risk-return spectrum, um, or the mechanics associated with primaries versus secondaries versus direct investing. Uh, There's a lot of industry jargon thrown around, which I'm guilty of as well. So getting to the bottom of what you're investing in and what you're really buying is crucial. Um, You want to make sure you have realistic outcomes um, or or I should say uh, your expectations for outcomes are realistic. So back to that HDMA framework, know the role of the asset class in the context of a broader portfolio. Don't expect private equity to, you know, be um to be up when markets are down meaningfully. Right. In 2022, most private equity was flat-ish, maybe up a little, down a little, but it's not going to return big, or it's unlikely to return big in an environment where markets are down meaningfully. So this is a positively correlated asset class. This is not a hedge, it's not negatively correlated. And then I'd say like respect the opacity of, of private equity. Um, but No differently from other asset classes, you want to be able to do your due diligence on your choices, which is often easier said than done. Um, So we actually encourage folks to to consider the four P's, right, Um, as as you kind of make your choices and and build your slate or your roster in this space. Understand the platform behind an offering, and that includes the people. Um, Do they have the expertise to navigate market cycles? Can they adequately source and diligence and underwrite opportunities Um, Secondly, on a related note, the performance. What is their track record? I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Third, the portfolio in question. How's it built, right? If you invest $100,000, how is that money going to be put to work Um, and what are they going to be investing in and, and how has that evolved over time? Is the fund or the strategy managed the way that it's marketed? Um, I think that's really key. It's, it's easy to tell a story, but does that story match the results? And then finally, the price. What is the cost of entry? Is it more or less expensive than similar products? And can you justify that, that difference? So understanding all of that and, and putting m- market context around it, I think is, is really important as you know folks look to evaluate managers and, and opportunities in the asset class.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, you, you brought up some, some great points there. And I think when we go through and talk to clients about private markets and not just private equity, so the same thing would apply to private debt or private real estate and some of the hedge strategies that determining a, a client's liquidity is key in the first step of that is to say okay here's the whole portfolio how much do you need when and let's take this slice that you're not going to need for a long time these are not things that we get in and out of maybe we trim maybe we add but this is not a- we always
0: say, if, if someone's looking to trade in and be out you know 30 seconds later or if at the time of entry they ask how soon can i get out this is not for them yeah <laughs> Um, A little bit of a joke, but you know, that is, it is accurate. So we agree with
1: you. Absolutely. Um, Any, you know, just looking at, and I know we need to, you've, you've been more than generous here with your time, but anything on just the current environment and, you know, from maybe a BlackRock perspective, what do you guys see as some, some real opportunities that are out there right now, or what are the kinds of things that you're looking at?
0: Yeah, so um, it definitely depends on the vantage point and that outcome that you're seeking. So there are a number of of really strong or marquee GPs um, bringing their latest vintage buyout fund to market. So that can be compelling for investors who are looking to make primary commitments. Um, but I'd say we're more focused on the opportunities in the direct investing space as well mm-hmm. as secondaries. So on the direct side, we are watching opportunities to provide capital to companies who are executing on a buy and build strategy as they grow inorganically. So um, less about tearing companies apart and more about looking for areas to uh, put things together, package them together um, and create synergies. So, you know, as we've been talking about for the last year with a lot of investors, it's now is a good time to be um, prudently aggressive. You don't want to be conservatively reactive. Right. Um, This is the time to, uh, you know, you've built up your war chest, you've built up your reserves, but it's a good time to play offense. Um, If you can and you're in a position, you want to see companies take market share from competitors. And you see that in the form of, of buy and build strategies where, you know, companies are acquiring smaller companies, often at lower multiples and kind of building them up into a larger aggregate uh, where they're going to command a valuation premium in the market. Um, and we've got, a, we have a couple examples, um, in some of our portfolios of, um, investments that are kind of undertaking this mission. If you look at the data in the market, these types of, you know, add on transactions were almost three quarters of North America buyout deal activity in 2022. Um, one of the themes that you're going to have heard about, I'm sure, over the last couple of months, maybe going back to 2022, is that M&A is down. Deal counts, you know, uh, deal counts are down. Um, but what we're seeing is actually some of the smaller transactions have gained share, right? So some of these buy, uh, buy and build, or, or kind of add on acquisitions. Um, and it's especially true in a market where debt financing. Has gotten um, has gotten challenging for for large, really large LBOs or, or buyout transactions that require debt. It's gotten um, harder to place, right? Because banks are not really there, and private credit is there, but that's you know quite expensive. Um, so you want to have some flexibility in in the types of deals that you're able to do, and and kind of that buy and build strategy is one example of that. I'd also be remiss if I did not mention, uh, the continued trend of take privates. So a lot of companies went public between 2018 and 2021. Um, The performance, if you look at just the stock price performance for a number of those post-IPO might be well below the S&P 500 or even the NASDAQ. And those are going to be compelling take private candidates, uh, especially if you've got the right PE backing and at the right price. So again, bit of context, if a take private or take private's an aggregate, you know, typically account for maybe 20% of private equity deal value, um, those double that doubled to about 40% in 2022. It was as high as 70% earlier this year. Wow. Um, so some of these, some of these companies that went public, maybe they went public too soon. Those are those are kind of ripe, uh, ripe to be taken private, where a private equity firm can come back in right, they can, um, they can cut costs, they can restructure, they can focus on the right initiatives, right, and focus on that efficiency of growth um, and, and sort of right-size things, create that value. Maybe those companies become candidates again in a few years to IPO or, or maybe they ultimately opt to stay private. Um, on the secondary side, uh, which, you know, I promised to, to mention as well, Those are also popular in this environment for a couple of reasons. So we're watching the fact that some investors institutionally got over allocated to private equity. Um, Last year, 2022's public market performance didn't help that in the context of the overall portfolio. So what happened was um, you saw the denominator effect um, come into play. The denominator effect is a really fancy industry jargon way of saying um, folks got over their skis in in private equity, and you know if maybe they had a twenty percent allocation to private equity because public valuations fell so quickly, right? The PE became lopsided and you you seesawed a bit. Um, so it's it's turned into maybe not stress selling per se, but um, you know you've got a number of existing investors in in private equity. Looking to either get out early, free up capital to make new commitments. Maybe they've got a board meeting, right? But they got to get that existing PE allocation down. So that's creating uh, that's creating some opportunities. And then elsewhere in secondaries, we're watching the PE managers who are looking for the fresh capital, right? That fresh capital to come in um, and you know have the patience and and you know bring a little love to see some of these existing. Uh, portfolio companies or investments to allow that uh, value creation to be maximized. So, pretty fertile ground, you know, for a range of you know investments, provided someone has the experience, the capital, the willingness, and the ability to transact, which not always a given in in private markets.
1: Awesome. Julianne, th- thank you. I know we've gone a little bit over our time, but. Really appreciate you taking some some time out to talk through us and and great job really well done uh, appreciate it.
0: My pleasure, um, happy to come on uh, anytime. But it was great spending time with you guys, and um, hopefully this is helpful for everyone.
1: Well, I got like actually six more questions we didn't get to, so maybe we'll do a part two. <laughs> we can do a part two. <laughs> Thanks, by
0: popular demand. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thanks. Thank you both. So that's our episode for today. Thank you for listening. If you found this topic interesting or useful, please let us know. Or if there are other topics you'd like us to address, let us know that too. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for being invested.
3: The RAND group is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC and SEC registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. The RAND Group and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for the statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. The RAND Group and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the author and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.